Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're going to talk about a skill that sometimes goes overlooked in a systemic therapist emerging skill set. So you need to be a good listener. You need to be empathic. Working with couples and families, you need to know when to be directive and when to take a step back. But many times writing a skill scene not paramount to the development of a therapist skill set is crucial. So today, with Dr. Sean Davis, my friend and colleague, we're going to talk about the importance of writing as a therapist, no matter where you are at your career, the beginning stages or well into it, writing for therapeutic effect, writing for your own self-care, writing to promote your own practice. All things we'll capture today. Let me tell you a little bit about Sean Davis. Sean received his bachelor's from BYU and a master's from there as well before studying under Fred Piercy at Virginia Tech for his PhD. He also completed a postdoc as a visiting faculty member at the University of Kentucky. Sean then went on to start the first MFT training program in Northern California that's CoAmpti accredited. That's at Alliant International University, the Sacramento branch. He's remained there ever since, working his way all the way up to full professor status. He's a prolific writer on his own. He's co-authored seven books, including what we'll mention today, the seminal textbook in our field. Used to be Nichols and Schwartz, and now it is Nichols and Davis. He's a great presenter, known for his work on Common Factors, where we have collaborated many times with our late great mentor, Doug Sprinkle, who we'll also talk about today. And he also has an eye toward being entrepreneurial. He's one of the best as far as practice building, especially in a state heavily populated with MFTs like California that I know. We'll touch on that a little as well. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Sean Davis as much as I enjoyed conducting it. And we'll be back after the interview. So pleased to be joined uh by my friend and colleague, Dr. Sean Davis, and today on the AMFT Podcast. Now, we're talking about something that you may not think, well, why do I need this skill? But as Sean will tell us today, it's really essential, even if you're a frontline clinician. So we're not talking about clinical work per se. We're talking about writing and the advantages of maintaining and sharpening your writing skills, even if you're not an academic, even if you're not have a background in writing. How can writing make us and complement our clinical skills? So always good to talk to you, my friend. Let's start with that question. But many aspiring therapists don't see writing as a primary thing in the skill set of becoming an emerging clinician, uh, certainly an MFT. So let's make the counter argument. Why is writing important, even if you have no background or only aspirations of being a clinician. Sure, and thanks for having me, Eli. Fun to join you on this. I would say to that argument that really, fundamentally, what writing is about is critical thinking. And to me, that's also fundamentally what therapy is about. So clients come to us when they have reached the end of their critical thinking abilities, basically, like they're, okay, I've thought of everything I can to figure this situation out, and nothing is working anymore, so I need your help. So to look at this from a different angle, to come at this, you know, in a new way, and that is fundamentally your ability as a therapist to think critically. And writing does the same thing. Writing, rec- Good writing requires the same 
core skill, I think. So you don't have to be great at grammar and syntax and all of that part of writing. But if you can put your thoughts into a logical, persuasive order and communicate them in a logical, persuasive order, that is very much at the core of therapy as it is at the core of writing as well. Sometimes people choosing this is like, well, I like talking. I don't necessarily like writing. So for the scope of our conversation today, we are talking about good writing habits and the ability to write not only about good paperwork as far as taking your notes, doing things like that, but also the benefit about writing about your clinical experience. So let's, let's talk about that. When, when you think of writing for a master's level clinician, what does that encompass for you? Yeah. Well, some of that writing, I think, some of the, well, there's what you said, right? You do have to write case notes. Often you'll be writing letters to communicate to the courts um, or to third-party stakeholders in some, some capacity. So you do need to be able to translate your thoughts onto paper succinctly and, and all of that. But that, in some ways, is kind of the more boring part. To me, the more enticing or fun part is as it relates to your own legacy, for example, so writing, I think, is it's a way to pass along your legacy to your thoughts. And you don't even have to be writing to, to the world. You could write it to your family or even to yourself in your journal. Um, what am I learning along the way? Um, it's kind of like I have a friend right now who's losing a lot of weight and he takes a picture of himself every day so he like, can track himself. <laughs> and writing, I think, is the same way, especially when you're going through something as intensive as a master's training program, doc training program in therapy. It's a way of tracking your progress, tracking your journey so you can see how far you've come. I have also found it to be really cathartic uh, at times when I just turn off my editor and grab a pen and paper and rattle off whatever I'm going through, like a journal. It's really cathartic and it's, it's free therapy basically. There's that personal writing, and then I think another application that many of our listeners like, especially those maybe young in their career or venturing out on their own, starting a private practice or getting some type of online presence, I think writing for the general public or how do you personalize your web page, either giving helpful advice or contextualizing, like we're in the middle of a global pandemic. You're also very entrepreneurial. You have one foot in academia, one foot in practice building and doing things like that. Talk about how writing can benefit somebody that wants to start their own practice or set up their own identity online as a marriage and family therapist. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Most of the marketing... So a lot of marketing that happens in therapy is like your reputation among other clinicians or your past clients. So this doesn't apply there, but there's a lot of marketing that happens with, say, your website or other marketing materials that you have out there. And with those, you have one shot to present yourself in an appealing in a way that appeals to people. And that is very much done with writing. It's done with the visual, like how your website looks and that, of course, but also visual. Like I can't tell you how many people we have that have come to my group and they say, frankly, we came to see you because your spelling worked. Like, we, you know, so many websites we had had the grammar was bad or the punctuation was off. So the ability to as a therapist, you're typically pretty good with empathy. And so you can understand what a client is going through as they're sitting at their computer searching for a therapist. You can understand what it, that feels like. And But the next, the where writing comes in is you need to be able to communicate that empathy to them while they are staring at your website. And so that's where writing really comes in handy as well as a practitioner. Many times... We have an experience of writing for a grade or writing an assignment in our master's program, which is very different than what we're talking about today. Obviously, if you're a good writer in those settings, it probably transfers over. But I think of something you just said made me think it's like, okay, we all know kind of how we do therapy, our preferred model or theory of change. Many, if not all of us have had to do that in some part of our training, how you extrapolate that on a website is very important. One of the things I do with students in a capstone course that prepares them for 
life after the graduate program is take a theory of change, which might be 10 or 15 pages, and condense that in layman's terms into how you would put it on your website if you were marketing yourself. What, what are your thoughts about capturing your way of being or your style of therapy in written form as far as letting people know what you're about, people that might come across your website or read your blog or something like that? Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's a great activity, by the way. Uh, I'll bet they get a lot out of that. I think uh, it's crucial. And one of the, you know, as you were talking about writing assignments and all of that, honestly, the first thing that comes up for me is stress, (laughs) remembering back to those times. And it wasn't until later in my doc program, and I had some good mentoring from some of my professors that were great at writing, that writing started to become fun. But I would say, if you're a student, and that is your main experience with writing, Uh, is the stressful assignments. Try to also do some writing that is completely separate from that, that is just fun and creative, and let your voice really come into it. Have your audience be like your friends or your family or something like that, where you are just trying to really let who you are shine through. And the more of that you do, then you can translate that into your marketing your practice. And so many people, they're not looking for, people that come to see you are not usually looking for your credentials or your experience, etc. They're looking for how their interaction with you makes them feel. And so you want your website to feel like you. You want your marketing materials, your blog, etc. to feel like you. And if it does... You, it will attract people that are like you. But if, if it just feels like a generic, like some assignment that you wrote for a class, um, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's kind of like a parallel process. It, it, it should look and reflect you. It, it shouldn't try to be someone you're not. It's kind of authenticity is one of these common factors you and I study. And knowing you over the years and working together, you are a good storyteller. So... I want to hear some good writing stories as, as you've, you know, you've written some very important things in the last two decades in our field and both kind of shorter things and longer things. Tell us some good writing stories that can teach a lesson and educate our listeners. Sure. Sure. My favorite uh, writing story. This occurred when soon after my doc program, I was, uh, had the, I, you know, I didn't had my dissertation done Doug Sprankle and I, who a good friend of yours, mine and yours, were talking about writing a book on common factors. So we got a contract with that. Jay LeBeau joined the project. We got a contract. And as soon as we got the contract signed, I just froze. And I, you know, I'm fresh out of my doc program. This is going to be the first book on this topic out there. And I freeze. And I, I couldn't have written my name, I don't think. And uh, my wife, I was driving my wife nuts, and the the deadline was approaching to get everything in, uh, all of my work, and I didn't have a single word written. The deadline, you know, it's coming up. I'm pacing around. I'm driving my wife insane. I'm doing like a million household projects to get my mind off of it and just this crazy nervous energy. And finally, my wife said, Sean, get in the car, grab your laptop, drive somewhere, and don't come back until you've written this book. And I laughed. I'm like, she's like, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, go. <laughs> and so I did. I found this little bed and breakfast up by Lake Tahoe where I live. In uh, Anyway, with no internet, I thought this is perfect. No internet, no distractions. So I grabbed all my materials and I headed up and got up there. And it was this bed and breakfast ran by a lady who an older retired lady who pretended to be British, but she wasn't. And so she had this really bad, this British accent that was horrible. Um, And anyway, so this funky little bed and breakfast, and I'm down there and I told her what she was doing and, and she loved it. It really fit her like image of herself, I think, and what she was trying to do in her, in her fake British bed and breakfast. And so 
I start writing and I get there at the end of the first day. I, you know, the next day get out of the shower and I realize I have not packed any extra clothes. <laughs> so all I have are the clothes in my hurry. Just Shh, to get the out shirt of off your back. Yeah. Shirt off my back. That's it. And so I, okay, fair enough. That's what I'm looking at. And the lady knocks on the door and she comes and she gives me this like peach. Every bre- breakfast every morning was peach pie and kiwis. <laughs> so she would bring me peach pie and kiwis every morning. And there were other people staying there. And she would go around to their doors and she would say, you mustn't bother the professor. He's writing a book. <laughs> And they would all look at me and we'd just all kind of like shrug and whatever. And so I wrote probably 17 or 18 hours a day on that thing, just hammering it out up there, writing like a madman. And it it took me about four or five days. And this crazy lady with her British accent and her peach pie and kiwis, who I I love the lady, by the way, I should go back and, and say hi. But uh Finally, at the end of those four days, I finished it and came back and submitted it, and and that was it. You know, it, it's it, the book's out there now, and I'm really proud of it. Uh, and that was, I call it my suffering for my craft trip. I was very grateful to get some new clothes. <laughs> and after that, was the process similar on on larger projects, or was that like a one-time thing? Because I often think, just um, our our mentor who will talk about. Doug some more yeah. in a second, but he would always call it the crappy first draft. As long as you get that done, you get your thoughts down, and that is the most important thing. And I, I've found that valuable over the years. But like when you can block out time, that's great. Versus other people, you know, if they just do a little every day, or they have some habits, like they do their meditation or they do flair, even if they're just practicing writing, even if it's a journal form, do you prefer the smaller increments or the uh, immersion block everything else out and kind of isolate yourself as you did uh, writing the book? Yeah, that's a a good question. I think everyone is going to have a different answer to that and you need to find what works for you. For me, one thing I stumbled on with that little self-imposed writing retreat was I worked really well that way. It's hard for me to write a big, long, creative piece in in like little chunks scattered throughout the week. I need to be able to sit and clear my brain and have nothing in my brain except that, and then enough time to get it out there. And it's hard for me to do that during a regular work week. Other people I know much prefer the, okay, I'm just going to schedule half an hour every morning, part of my like kind of morning routine to write stuff. But I do think you need to be, the, the principle is you need to be purposeful and you do need to have some sort of a routine around it um, that you stick with. Otherwise, it, it's, you know, if it's not a priority, it's just not going to happen. You had the privilege of probably sitting under two of the most prolific purveyors of the field of, of our time, the late, great Doug Sprinkle, who we said, another one of your mentors uh, and former guest of the show, Fred Piercy, uh, now in retirement late of Virginia Tech, uh, where you got your PhD. What did you learn from watching Fred and Doug, who, by the way, were very close, uh, both writing partners, friends, colleagues, so uh, they had a natural uh, flow off each other, even though they were very, very different in some ways. Yeah, you're right. They were very different, and I was very, very lucky to have gotten to know them, uh, both, both you and I, actually. I would say one thing that I learned from... Fred, who I spent the most time with early on, is to just write. So, and that sounds simple and obvious and kind of duh, but really so much time with writing is spent thinking about it and planning for it and strategizing for it and all that. And he said, don't cut out like 80% of that and just sit down and start writing. He said, don't turn off your editor like you said, the really crappy first draft, that was one of Doug's things to bang out a bunch of stuff on your screen. Don't worry about an audience for it. Don't worry about if it flows, anything. Just write it. And then once it's there, figure out what to do with it. And Fred was so, he did that so much that what happened was he, over time, 
his crappy first draft w- became like something you and I would strive to do. That it would be like our tenth draft, you know, <laughs> just because he did it so much. I remember one time he he showed me this article he'd just published. I'm like, oh, when did you write that? He said, oh, I uh, one day I went home after work and uh, you know I just had kind of some energy still basically some nervous energy and so I sat down and I wrote about one of my favorite interventions and so then he sent it off and published it it's like no who does that Fred (laughs) but Fred does that and it's because he wrote a lot essentially if, if you want to write a lot you have to write a lot which again sounds simple but it's there's more to it than you'd think with Doug I would say the thing I learned mostly from him is Doug, as you know, was just such a workhorse. I mean, he if if he got locked onto an idea, he was really going to make it happen. And he was so thorough and so detail-oriented. He was always challenging me with stuff I'd written and saying, well, what about this and what about that? That's what I got from Doug, is just there really is no substitute for that diligent hard work. They, they were both workhorses and, and so prolific in their own way, uh, both editors of our flagship journal, which also probably helped their writing. They just pervade so much and saw so much. And I don't think ever in my career, well, I always say this, and I said this on the podcast to Fred, I've never got a better rejection letter ever from Fred. Not only was it polite, like Fred is, a consummate gentleman and scholar, but it's like the feedback made you actually better even it was not accepted and doug same way made you think and do things so that's another outgrowth of that question it's like where should we go let's say again i want to do this i'm no longer in my master's program i'm uh, in my own practice or maybe i'm working in an agency and i am now dabbling into writing more where where do i go where do i get feedback on my writing so it depends how serious you want to get about it. If if you want to get more serious and look into publish, possibly getting things published, most areas, most communities will have a write, local writing groups for different types of writing, either creative or professional or, or what have you. People will be re- listening to this at all times of history, possibly right now in the middle of our pandemic, a lot of those are on Zoom. And so you have the or online, and so you have the luxury of being able to look beyond your community for those. You can also just ask friends and family. Of, of course, hopefully within your group, you have someone who is a good writer somewhere. Just ask them. Most most people are happy to help. Sometimes local universities will have things like that uh, uh, for people to take advantage of. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of early on about kind of journals and things like that. Some people don't consider, and I'll be one of these people, I've just never kept a journal because somehow, I don't know, I would feel almost like cringe if I wrote something and reflected back later. But in in doing that, I found later as I was writing about my therapeutic experiences and my evolution as a therapist, it was a different type of writing. So it was more focused on the, again, the therapeutic encounter, the types of clients. It didn't look like a caseload. It just looked reflections of my own growth and my thoughts in the therapy room, which was a different type of way of working. I was turned on to that through a supervisor who told me, if you're going to you're going to explore, this is like, you know, therapy of the week and you're trying different things and you're having clients write letters or having clients keep journals. Well, you got to buy it to sell it. So uh, in any intervention, if you give it and you're not really believe it could work or fit the client, it's probably not going to work. So I just remember trying to do that then and it really worked. What, what are your thoughts? Well, two things about kind of keeping not case notes, but like reflections on your own clinical work, and then writing as like a therapeutic intervention. I'm curious what you think on that, which is uh, sometimes people pick it up in supervision or you think of models like narrative, but it's not something really taught in traditional co-empty programs, but I'm curious of your thoughts on uh, writing interventions for clients. So I'll start with that one. The writing interventions for clients, I think, are great uh, for all the same reasons that it's, it's good for therapists to get it down. There's something about writing that I think makes you it makes you slow down your thoughts and there's something really beautiful about the permanence of something that's on paper. You can have it you can have it from from then on out, you know. I, I think I have a 
in my emails, one of my email folders, it says it's called kind words, you know, and it, it's email, kind emails people have sent me. And, and when I'm having kind of a down day or something, I'll, I'll sift through some of those. And I think it's the same for clients when they have, you can give them a letter uh, that, that will, they'll keep forever, sort of like a, a Dumbo's feather kind of thing as they go out into to life for themselves writing can write letters to your future self, letters to your past self, all of which just that process of slowing down and taking deliberate time and attention to send a message to either yourself, other people, whoever it might be, is beautiful. And and I guess I, I should emphasize this is that's not the time really to be focused on perfect grammar or or syntax or whatever that's when you're focused on your heart. Actually, if, if I could circle back a little bit to when we were talking about Fred and Doug, one thing I learned from Fred that, that ties into what we're talking about now as well is you need to... I remember when I s- approached him with my dissertation idea, I was so excited about it. And I approached him and he listened to it. And when I was done, he said, that's a good idea, Sean but it's pretty boring. How? <laughs> it's like, ouch. Uh, okay. What do you mean? He's like, you could make this a lot more interesting with just a couple of little tweaks. And then it would feel more like Sean Davis than just some, you know, anonymous study. And he showed me how to make these few little tweaks to it. And he spent a lot of time with me with writing saying, make this sound this sound like you make this fun like put put you in it and i think that is where with therapy writing can be really helpful is it's it's a way for clients to see themselves in a different context sort of to stand meta from themselves really and to put themselves out there on paper it's fun there is something intentional about putting words on a paper that you have to think through that and i have a client currently in the context of a couple and they have a, a typical demand withdraw pursue or distance or pattern and when she shuts down she really shuts down so the writing she uses in between sessions and brings into the session and she's such an articulate writer you would never know some people write like they talk and there's other people that when given the space can like really open your eyes up so it's an amazing way for her to communicate to her partner. She's intentional. She likes it. And again, that's not something that, that I would have picked up on or known. It's something that sometimes the client, if they have that skill, you you got to find a way to use it. So I like I like what we're talking about, using it in the room with clients and, and, and outside of the room. And we've talked about writing habits and what you've learned. Now, of all of the things that you've written, both you and I have this interest in common factors and have, have done that work for many years. And I think the other thing when I've, when I've written with you, it's like, there's something about writing. Like you ever read uh, a article where it's like, it's very clear. There might be brilliant minds and researchers, but they've probably never set foot in a therapy room, maybe since their internship year or their program. So yeah. I, I think one of the things about you that I appreciate is writing in an accessible way and knowing your audience. And that's, a, that's really important today too, whether your audience is a consumer or a client or your audience is writing for other therapists. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and then we can talk about in your 20 plus year career, what stands out to you is what you were the most proud of. Writing style, it's very easy in an academic writing style to, to get very kind of inaccessible and dry and, and boring. When I was debating on whether to go, to, what to do with my career, I remember sitting down with, with Fred, actually, and, and Fred was like, you you do a good job at being a professor, Sean. Sean, I think you should look into this. And he was making his case for that. And I said, here's my thing with professors, though. Like, all you guys do is sit around and write really dry, boring stuff and publish it. And then the only people that read it are each other, you, you know, your, your circle of like 12 friends, and then you pat each other on the back and like, you're not doing anything. <laughs> and he, he laughed and he sort of agreed. He said, sure, fair enough. So, but you, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. Um, you could, you know, you could get out there and do it however you wanted to and, and write stuff that's really meaningful. And so when I decided to be a professor, 
one commitment I made to myself was I want to make sure that whatever I write is going to be practical, meaning someone could take it, read it, and then walk into a room and do better therapy with a client as a result of having read it. And I would say mostly I've stuck with that. I Probably 70 or 80% of my stuff I would, I'm pretty comfortable has stuck with that. And to me, that's really rewarding. And, and so I, I enjoy that. It's, it feels like part of a legacy. And, and I know a lot of other people feel the same way. And, and once I got into academia, I realized it wasn't quite so bleak as, as I thought. <laughs> um, there's a lot more creativity and nuance than I was seeing. But um, uh, it's, it's a fun way to leave a legacy, basically, and to, to make a difference. In why should therapists write? One thing I tell my students is, if you look at all these people who've come up with models, you know, the, the, the Sue Johnson, the Dick Schwartzes, all of these really impressive models, I, I say, look, every single therapist out there has a model in their head in, in the way they do work. Um, every single therapist out there is a Sue Johnson or a Dick Schwartz or whatever. The difference is, the, the Sue Johnsons and the Dick Schwartzes wrote about what they do, and they get out there and they talk about it and, and they test it and all of that. But that really is the only difference. So writing about what you do as a therapist, um, even if it's just to a small audience, it can really make a lasting, powerful impact for people that, that can ripple through through generations. So you talk about legacy and of all that you have written in different kind of contexts, whether it be an article, a book, a textbook. Yeah. What uh, stands out to you in your 20 plus career is something you were the most proud of. You could only read, uh, I asked Fred this question uh, several years ago on the show. You could only read one Sean Davis text or manuscript. What would it be? Whatever. Yeah, that that's an easy one for me. A long time ago, in my qualitative research class at Virginia Tech, one of them, we had to write a paper, an autoethnography. I wrote an autoethnography about an experience that I had had with my father around issues of differentiation with Bowen and all of that. And what, for me, had started out as a trip to go back home and have one of these, what I had pictured in my sort of new therapist minds as one of these grand differentiation trips home, you know, where I come out of it healed of all my family stuff. <laughs> and it, it didn't end up working like that at all. And so I wrote an autoethnography about that, and it was very vulnerable. Um, and I talked about it with my dad because, you know, there are some sort of more challenging things about our relationship in it. And so I didn't want it to be out there. It would have felt wrong to have it out there without my dad having signed off on it, at least, or at least know it was coming. And so he read it. And it was, as someone who had kind of a at the time, conflicted relationship with his dad, it was, it was a really difficult, vulnerable thing to do. It was really hard. But it ended up being a really nice conversation, and it set in mo motion a, a sequence of events that where now my dad and I are really close. Um, but that article is out there, and it has uh, it was published in the Qualitative Report back in 2005. Uh, it's called Beyond Technique, an Autoethnographic Exploration of How I Learned to Show Love Towards My Father. And not many people know about it. It doesn't get very many reads or downloads or anything. But um, it's by far my, uh, my, the favorite thing I've written. I feel really vulnerable having it out there. Um, but then when I hear back from someone who found it and is like, wow, this, this really impacted me, it's, I feel really rewarding having it out there too. Over 15 years later, when you read that, does it still hold true? Because, you know, good writing, when you when you share that vulnerability, again, you should be able to look at it later. And it, it's your truth, but in reading that, other people can see parallels between their relationship with a parent or their relationship yeah. with a family member. So are you, clearly you're proud of it. And all the time that you and I have known each other, I, I, I've never read that, so you, you have surprised me today. I will certainly <laughs> okay. want, want to read that, knowing you. Well, it holds the test of time. 
very much so. And in fact, uh, that's part of what I like about it so much is now when I read it, I find that it will ground me for like, I will read it when I'm feeling kind of adrift in whatever I'm doing. Um, and it always brings me back to, to the basics, the fundamentals, the, the core of, of why I'm doing this to, to my why basically. And, and it, interestingly last, um, just earlier this week, actually, I had a fellow reach out to me who is a, learning to be a therapist he plays for the uh, he's a trumpeteer in one of the san francisco orchestras and he emailed me and he said i found your article this article i loved it and it has totally changed the way that i play the trumpet <laughs> and so like that's fascinating and i had zero intentions of having it in did, did he explain because that not on the surface that's not uh it's not a direct connection <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he did explain. He he said, meaning, because I talked about how in the paper, well, part of what I needed to learn was to let go of this grasping for techniques and all of this and to just be comfortable going with the flow of things. And that had resonated with him with his with his trumpeteering. There, there's more to it than that, a lot more to it. But he was talking about how he, professional what do what they call him, trumpeteer, I don't know, guy playing the trumpet, he had still, uh, that had taken him to kind of his next level with playing the trumpet. So. I also like this idea of uh, kind of a parallel process to that. If you, in the therapy room, if you have somebody write something personal, and even if the relationship or the therapy is individuals, not couple or family, you can still be a family therapist, one person in the room, but sharing that narrative with a significant other is, is very powerful, vulnerable yet powerful. So I think, as we were saying earlier, whether you're using writing for your own self or you're using it with the client, it can have like a ripple effect. So that obviously meant a lot to your dad too. Was that the first time he really had a grasp of what you were doing professionally? Yeah, I think it was one of them. It was for sure the first time he had a grasp of how I had experienced him growing up. And, you know, there were parts of it I, I know that he was, was hard for him to hear and was sad. But it also allowed us to focus on a conversation about what we wanted. You know, we've got a lot of years left together. What do we want it to look like? And to have that conversation too, which ended up, you know, which ended up working. Um, so one of yeah. the things I've been, I haven't told you about, I've been writing about lately, given that therapy is really a failure driven endeavor in the sense that we learn and recalibrate by listening to our clients, trying things, trying different things. So sometimes writing about your therapeutic fails and how you addressed uh, either a tear in the alliance or a mistake, uh, is very, it's vulnerable, but it's also a very healing and cathartic. As another assignment I have students do towards the end is write about, because we're used to being writing about, you know, like positive things and making ourselves much like in supervision. We want to show video of where we're doing well, but sometimes writing about what didn't work and how you readjusted and how you recalibrated is very powerful too. Let's 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 talk about uh, writing in a cathartic way like that. Do you have any? stories or any sense about writing about things when things are not great in fact i think those those are the those are the ones that work the best um i i and i imagine you have as well i think we've talked about this actually you and i you, you we have our students will go to trainings and they'll be they'll go to the training feeling really good about themselves and then they come back feeling not so good because they see all this supposedly perfect stuff on display, perfect work, without realizing all of the failures that go into that, that one carefully chosen sort of snapshot that gets portrayed. So I, I view it honestly, as an ethical duty for us as therapists to especially the trainers and the people that are writing to write about the failures and about what goes wrong. Because who are we kidding? Like everyone's out there. You're, I like your phrase of failure-driven enterprise. It, it really is. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all making a lot of mistakes. And to me, that's a lot more humanizing and is a lot more secure. It, it, it models security on part of the author, I think, to say, yeah, hey, here's how I messed up. 
And I think there's just a lot more power and comfort in that than the um, here's what perfect therapy looks like and that's all I do. Now, absolutely. Now, you've also mentioned you have written by yourself. You've had many collaborators. Uh, we've collaborated before. It's one of my favorite things is uh, what we wrote in 2015 about integrating common factors into training programs. And it doubly special is that to wrote that with our colleague Adrian and our, our friend Doug, and it's probably his last major publication. So it's a question about writing by yourself and collaborating. The challenges, both the benefits and the challenges of writing with somebody else. And then I have a question. You took over one of the most successful franchises in MFT textbooks. I think when I was in school, it was on like its third edition. It used to be Nichols and Schwartz, then it was Nichols. Then it was Nichols with Davis, and now it's Nichols and Davis. So let's talk about writing with other people and then what it was like to take on that, that, that. textbook franchise. So writing with other people and writing by yourself are, of course, very different things. I remember if I could circle back to a, a Fred story, we, we should sort of probably co-author this with Fred with how many Fred stories I tell. But um, he, he had an article once he had been asked to write and he's like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this or not. I said, oh, I could help. He said, no, this is the type of article I have to write by myself. And I was like, well, why is that? He said, because there's a feel that I, I want it to feel a way that only I it's a one author type of thing. Like uh, the feeling that I have, the vision I have for how I want it to feel is not something you do with another person. And sure enough, when I read it, I'm like, oh yeah, I get what you're saying. So sometimes it is better to write by yourself if you want it to feel a certain way, or if it's just a, a vision that kind of only you can portray. But Otherwise, it's much better to write with other people, I think, because you can have a really nice synergy of ideas. I mean, you and I have had a lot of fun, I, th I think, writing these projects and come up with ideas for them that are better than anything we could have possibly done on our own. Probably not you, but certainly better than anything I could have done on my own. It's nice. You do have to, you know, you have to have, do it with friends, people you get along with. Um, and I think you need to go into it with um, with some expectations of being flexible with each other, and you, you can't you have to play well with people and and uh, not get super crazy about deadlines or 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 whatever. But just focus on having fun with it. And those those projects are a lot of fun. You asked about the the transition to the nickels uh, with the Nichols text. Um, yes, yeah, that's probably something that is quite challenging because it's an established brand and you're updating it and you're trying to honor probably the what is good about the previous mm -hmm. 10, 11 versions, but putting your own stamp on it. So I'm just curious how you do that. And then I'll, I want to tell yeah. our listeners about uh, how they can contact you. Go ahead. Yeah, that was a very surreal experience for me because, as as you know, I really like theory. It's it's a lot of fun, and my copy of that textbook um, is you know really dog-eared. It's dripping with red ink from marking. Like I, th I think I marked most of the book, and uh, I loved it. And still to this day, I I have um, I'm kind of a theory nerd with this stuff, but I will have vignettes from that are still in my mind as I envision cases. And so I remember exactly where I was and I, I see a voicemail on my phone and I listened to it and it was Mike Nichols asking if I wanted to to join him as, as the co-author. And, and I remember hanging that up and just staring. We were on vacation actually and I was sitting on a little patio and, and I just stared out the window for about an hour and didn't say anything and listened to it again to make sure it was what I thought and for me as someone who loves theory this this was sort of like uh, yeah I don't know, you could draw whatever parallel you want but it was kind of the the pinnacle of my excitement and so I uh, yeah, I joined, and the challenge is I'm very much at this point. Um, clearly, Mike Nichols knows a lot about writing a, a good, great textbook. And so my first bit has been just learning from him. And what do you, you know, help me trying to understand as much as I can 
what has made that text so magical and so enduring over the years uh, to so many people, while at the same time bringing, you know, no, trying to understand what it will take to help it to continue to endure for hopefully as many more years going forward. It's been a great challenge. It's been a lot of fun. I, it's very surreal. I remember one vignette in particular that had stuck in my mind throughout my career. And I, the first time I was editing the book, I remember sitting at this and staring at that vignette on my screen rather than on my book in front of me, it was on my screen. And there's the blinking cursor at the end of the vignette. And uh, I had needed to trim this out uh, to make space for something else. And it felt like I, so as I watched me delete that vignette, it felt sort of like part of, I was deleting part of my like identity, you know. Then I was able to write in one that kind of communicated what they wanted a little bit better and what we were trying to say. So um, it was very surreal for me. Uh, And I'm, you know, hopeful that it continues, continues on, that I'm able to keep that legacy going. Well, Another thing, even in the midst of our global pandemic, that I think ties this all together. First of all, you're very accessible, as we've seen this hour, if anybody wants to get in contact with you. But, I mean, what you've done, which I think is a great resource, it brings people together, great locations, and it gives you what we started the uh, hour with, a really intense period to write and get feedback on your writing. It's the Sean Davis Writing Retreats. So, Tell us about that and, and what you've enjoyed the most about that and what a per- potential participant would get out of a Sean Davis writing retreat. Well, when I when my wife sort of stumbled me onto these writing retreats, I realized, boy, that these were great for me. And so I, I kept doing them. And people would find out about them and they'd say, hey, can I come along? And so eventually enough people were asking, I'm like, I should just turn this into a thing where we all sort of go along and benefit together from it. And so a friend of mine, Dr. Jason Platt in Mexico City, he does writes in a similar way. We decided to start doing these writing retreats. And so once a year, of course, now with the pandemic, it everything's on hold, but once it's done, we'll kick it back on. We, you come with us, uh, we all go out into, we try to find some location that's, that mimics the spirit of my first writing retreat, just without a little bit less of the, the weirdness. Without the kiwi and peach clothes. pie. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and more clothes. And so you, you go, but something that is a little bit, it gets your brain into a different spot. It's a little quirky, a little eccentric, a little bit out of the norm for you. We go there and we just spend tons of time writing. Uh, Everyone spends time writing. And then we have several different consultation times throughout it uh, where you can meet with me or Dr. Platt um, and then also time with the group. And then we'll have different rituals as well designed to sort of get get you out of writer's block, get your creativity going, that type of thing. And we've had a a ton of articles have gotten published from these. A couple books have come out of Well, them. I was going to say, you don't have to be an academic. In fact, I think your majority yeah. of your participants, right, they're, what, what does the typical demographic look like? Yeah, the average participant is a, therap- a master's level clinician who just has had for a long time wanting to, like, I've got this idea in my head. I really want to get it out there, um, but I'm not quite sure how. Um, and maybe it's they just want to write a bunch of blog articles for their blog or for their website, or they want to, you know, write a draft of a, get a first two chapters from a book that they have in their mind or something and, and get some advice on how to find a publisher, stuff like that. But yeah, we don't get too many academics um, that come. Mostly it's mostly it's the academics that come are mostly our friends and they just want to come hang out. <laughs> the uh, the ones that are there for the really heavy writing tend to be um, master's level clinicians. Also, as we wrap up here, tell people the best way to get a hold of you. And I will also put in, uh, I mean, Sean does a lot of things well. So whether, you know, we're talking about writing or we're talking about common factors, another thing that he's been able to do really well is 
the entrepreneurial part of him, the, the foot that's outside of academia is as far as practice development. And I also know you probably have some resources for therapists building a private practice. So tell them how to get a hold of you and where they can find all this good information. Sure. Yeah, I, I do some of that as well. The easiest way to get a hold of me is through my way my website, thedavisgroup.org. My email address is Dr. Davis, D-R-D-A-V-I-S, at thedavisgroup.org. Um, you can also reach me through, I'm also currently at Alliant International University um, as a professor there where you can get my uh, sdavis at alliant.edu. Um, but yeah, that's the best way to reach me. I keep my website uh, up to date in terms of what's going on, writing retreats, um, practice stuff, that type of thing. I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, Sean Davis PhD is my professional Facebook page. And also, congratulations. Uh, he's the 2020 recipient of the AMFT Training Award, uh, something we also share in common. So um, I'm proud that you were recognized in that way, my friend, and so happy you joined us today on the podcast. Thank you, Eli. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate your friendship over the years and writing. Again, maybe you'd never thought about it as a skill I need to develop when you listen to podcasts like this and other ones, but hopefully you were inspired to think about your own career where you're at and how dedicating more time to writing, whether that be in the way you promote your practice or you capture your observations from the therapy session or the way you use writing interventions in your clinical work. Here at the AMFT Podcast, we like to bring you the topics and the personalities that drive the field of systemic therapy. As always, drop us a line. Twitter, it's at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We appreciate star ratings, reviews, anything you can do to show your support to help us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. We have three seasons worth of back installments. If you're just tuning in to the show for the first time, find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Drop me a line, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also find me at EliCaram.com. That's K-A-R-A-M. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.